Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Lucas Rappel, and today I'll be speaking with Andrew Liu about his new book, T-War, A History of Capitalism in China and India. After water, tea is the most widely consumed drink in the world. It's beloved by consumers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Americas, and it comes in a bewildering array of varieties, from the cheap sachet of finely ground English black tea to fermented bricks of Pu'er from Yunnan province. This beverage also has a fascinating place in the global history of science and capitalism. At the turn of the first millennium, it was prized as a medical concoction in southwestern China, and it became a ubiquitous beverage throughout the Chinese empire during the Tang dynasty, when its spread coincided with the rising popularity of Buddhism. By the 15th century, the preparation of modern loose-leaf tea began to emerge, while the 17th century witnessed its ascent as a major export commodity for the early Qing Empire, becoming enmeshed in a global circuit of bullion, commodities, and people. Then, during the 19th century, tea arose to become an absolute staple in Europe, especially among industrial workers in England, who sweetened the drink with cane sugar imported from the Caribbean. Anxious to stop hemorrhaging bullion to China and eager to assert its imperial self-sufficiency, the British uh, fought two opium wars that severely weakened the Qing. Around the same time, English capitalists also began to export Chinese workers and knowledge to newly acquired colonial possessions in the Assam region of what is now northeastern India. It was this aggressive push to begin cultivating tea as a British export commodity in South Asia that gave rise to the global competition between British India and China referenced in the title of Liu's book, Tea War. Liu has given us a fascinating new history of this ubiquitous beverage, leveraging its production, consumption, and global circulation to offer a fresh and compelling account of capitalist accumulation. Liu challenges past economic histories premised on the technical divergence between the West and the rest, arguing instead that seemingly traditional technologies and practices were central to modern capital accumulation across Asia. He shows how competitive pressures compelled Chinese merchants to adopt abstract industrial conceptions of time, while colonial planters in India pushed for labor and denture laws to support factory-style plantations. Together, these stories point towards a more flexible and globally-oriented conceptualization of the history of capitalism, one that explicitly highlights global competition and coerced labor as a driving force in economic development. It's an absolutely fascinating book to read, and I had a wonderful time speaking with its author. Welcome, Andy Liu, to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Uh, Thanks for having me. So I thought we could start by just talking a little bit about the sort of historical premise of your book, Tea Wars. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the topic of tea cultivation, the history of tea cultivation, and what made you decide you wanted to write a book about this topic? Yeah, so the basic premise, I think, comes off of a history that most people might be familiar with already, which is the 18th to 19th century, this trade triangle emerges where the British Empire is selling 
finished goods, like a lot of textile goods to India, using those profits, uh, this is the East India Company, right, uh, to purchase opium, that they have a monopoly over in India, and then taking that opium to China where they sell it for tea and bring it back to England. This is the birth of, you know, tea time and combining tea with sugar and milk in, in European diets and so on. So that's been written about before. Um, what I was interested in kind of figuring out was what kind of happens next. Um, you know, I, I, I had always, I had always been kind of fascinated by that triangle trade aspect. You know, I took classes in Chinese history and South Asian history as an undergrad. And uh, I was kind of curious what happens next. And I was kind of thinking of a way to kind of tie together these histories of China and South Asia together. Um, and uh, I just kind of stumbled upon this topic of how uh, British colonists tried to make their own tea industry, which becomes Indian tea that we're all familiar with now. And uh, they did so by bringing in Chinese tea makers. And there's a whole sort of like uh, funny, funny yet sad colonial episode where they bring in these Chinese tea makers. They don't actually know how to make tea. They were just kind of basically indiscriminately grabbing Chinese people and bringing them to India. Um, and that's kind of like sets off this longer history of um, Indian tea emerges. And by the end of the 19th century, Indian tea overtakes Chinese tea, which is unthinkable, right? Tea is kind of the quintessentially um, classically Chinese commodity uh, contribution to, to global trade. So I guess, uh, you know, there's a basic question of how did that happen? And the more um, sort of in-depth question is like, what happens along the way? Do Chinese merchants and officials in the Qing dynasty become aware of colonial India? What do they think about it? Do our people in, or the British and the later Indian thinkers in India, are they aware of what's going on in China? And, uh, you know, from there, I just kind of explored the, the, these questions and as uh, kind of uh, understanding, also getting at these larger historiographical questions about what is capitalism and what does it look like in this part of the world? Yeah, cool. So just for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with this history, totally fascinating kind of historical um, narrative that you present in your book. Can you just tell us a little bit about kind of the deep history of tea? Like when was tea first cultivated? Who first started drinking tea and what kinds of context? And then when did tea initially emerge as a kind of global commodity? Yeah, so it obviously has a sort of like East Asian, Asian origins. It In terms of like where is it indigenous to, um, the best guess now is there's just kind of this belt of land from Southwest China stretching across, you know, Northern Thailand, Northern Burma into Northeast India, um, in this region, which is mo- in modern days known as Assam, where most, um, Indian tea is still grown. Uh, that's where it's indigenous to, And that's, I don't know, thousands of years is when the first recorded uses of it emerge, but it really doesn't become this really like, um, mainstream drink in in chinese history until the tang dynasty in the 7th to 9th century it's tied to uh the spread of buddhism in china at the time and then it goes through these processes of being manufactured as this very elite rare luxury good um forms of tea people may have seen before like cake teas like fermented cake teas which are popular in yunnan yunnan province in southwest china powder teas which we know as yeah poor yeah exactly and then matcha, which is a Japanese powdered tea. These are all kind of the early labor-intensive forms. The tea that we're most familiar with is, you know, just loose leaf tea, which is much simpler to make. You just kind of roast and roll these leaves. Um, that becomes popular during the Ming Dynasty, the 14th to 18th, 17th centuries. And that's a, pretty much the exact same time that tea becomes known as this luxury good uh, among Europeans. Um, first the Dutch, but then also the Portuguese, and then, of course, later, eventually, the English become really into tea for, you know, several reasons. Um, and as I mentioned before, there's a lot of 
like English British histories about tea and sugar. Um, that that's that story of consumption is well known, and you know we can get into the, you know what is the role of calories and caffeine and the, with the English working class and so on. There's an interesting parallel that you know when tea first becomes um, valorized in Asia, it's you know it's known for its caffeine, its kind of properties of keeping you awake, and that's valuable for um, like religious practice, religious purposes. But it's contrasted against alcohol, and the same thing is happening in Europe. You know, a millennia later, right? coffee and tea when they become popularized in Europe. The contrast is always, you know, unlike alcohol, which makes you sleepy and unable to do work, tea and coffee can actually help you, you know, like wake up in the morning and do your homework and do your work during the day. So that, that's an interesting parallel. Um, so there's yeah. like a moral component to tea drinking. Yeah. And, you know, we go even further and say, you know, tea was associated with Buddhism and coffee and tea were kind of associated with this, you know, Protestant work ethic, uh, you know, for, for some historians of Western Europe, right? So there's a religious that also, of course, is... Religious meaning that's also, of course, on top of the sort of social and economic meaning um, uh, of these values that become, you know, mainstream. So that these are all sort of things that I've, you know, kind of taken from other scholars of tea. Um, and I think that's a pretty decent overview. There's a lot more that can be said, I think, about the religious aspect in the early moments. But, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not, the, I'm not the most, uh, uh, I don't have the greatest expertise on that. And then if you could just tell us a little bit about how this quintessentially Chinese beverage came to be cultivated in Assam, in what is now India. So how, how did how, how tea became sort of tied up with the British Empire, the East India Company, and came to be cultivated in India? Yeah, so Assam is, you know, it's in Northeast India today. It is kind of one of these frontier peripheral regions where there's still even today, like lots of, you know, conflict between the central government of India and the people who live out there who are kind of who don't really see themselves as perhaps part of like mainstream Indian culture and that they it was a region that you know for the longest time was not part of like the Mughal Empire for instance before it was kind of its own thing its own sort of you know kingdom is what historians would say that was kind of half Burmese Thai half tied to like Bengal and eastern India um, and it was just this kind of disputed territory that um, long story short of the 18th early 19th century a war breaks out um, that involves Burma to the east and the British were already in India. Um, they enter Assam and try to you know, defend their territory in Bengal. Um, and it was through those wars of ultimately defeating the Burmese in the 18-teens and 1820s that the British acquire or annex Assam. And in so doing, you know, they're wondering, like, what do we do with this piece of land that we don't know anything about? Uh, but at the same time, they discover, hey, there's this wild tea plant that grows, tea grows here also. Um, and at the same moment, you know, the British uh, East India Company, the British Empire, they were already thinking, like, we need to somehow break the Chinese monopoly on tea. Um, and most famously, they do so by having by fighting the Opium War and literally breaking open the monopoly. But I say, you know, I argue in the book that Indian tea was the Opium War by other means. It was their other sort of non-militaristic, I mean, it was still militaristic in different ways, though. It was their sort of economic way of getting around the so-called Chinese monopoly on tea by... Um, cultivating tea in their own colonies. And um, I think this is something that historians have kind of paid more attention to, these efforts during in the colonial period, 18th and 19th century, of these different European and maybe American powers kind of moving crops around the world um, with, with a sort of like mercantilist interest in bringing all the crops around the world underneath, underneath their own like sovereign power, territories that they have taken over. Um, so tea is not the only one, I think like, you know, um, rice and coffee and all sorts of experimental, like all sorts of 
agricultural experiments are happening around the world and tea, coffee, or tea is just sheep one of them. in New Zealand, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sheep in Japan. And yeah, there's, there's these stories that are everywhere. Um, yeah. Yeah, so like an early modern kind of biotechnology, you might say. Yeah, um, or, you know, like piracy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> which, are, which are often connected to each other yeah, yeah, yeah. in today's world as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so since a lot of our listeners, not all of them, but a lot of them will be interested in knowledge production and science and technology studies, areas like this, I wonder if you could just go a little bit more into how, so if there's uh, indigenous tea plants mm. that were are discovered to already have been growing in this, uh, in Assam, yeah. how the knowledge about both how to maybe prune those plants and cultivate them and then produce tea from the leaves that those plants grew was imported to Assam by the British Empire as well. Yeah, so my understanding of tea is that it's actually quite simple, that the process for making it is kind of, winds up kind of the same in a lot of ways. It's, you know, it's a plant that's grown on a tree called Camellia sinensis. You take the plant and you could immediately process it by rolling it and drying it, and that produces what we would call green tea. Uh, along the way, it was discovered that if you kind of leave, leave it in the sun at different moments or in you know, sort of simulations of the sun or wilting, weather or using machines to wilt them, they will undergo a process that was known as fermentation, but is really oxidization that turns into something that's like a semi-fermented tea, like or semi-oxidized uh, tea, like oolong tea or black tea, which is like a much darker version of the same leaf. Um, but whatever the case, it's uh, all the different teas around the world, as long as it's tea tea, not like an herbal tea, it comes from like the same tea plant. The question is just how do you process it? So the, but this was all a mystery. And there was actually a lot of British debates in the 1830s about whether black tea and green tea were the same plant or not. Let's discover all the different tea plants. They, they, they subsequently discovered they're actually all from the same plant. Um, so they have this, again, kind of like comical episode of the, the quote is they brought every any person with a, with a pigtail, meaning like the sort of the Manchu Q haircut that was, pop, that was not popular, it was mandated in China at the time. They just kind of grabbed a bunch of Chinese workers and not even just from China, but from like Malaysia um, and brought them to India on the assumption that any Chinese person can make tea. When Of course, it's actually like a skill that's um, kind of taught from family to family. So a lot of a lot of um, Chinese workers were like, you know, we don't really know what was going on, but they basically, you know, shove them to Assam, bring them up to Assam where they're completely unfamiliar with this territory and sit, they tell them like grow tea for us. And, uh, you know, this could lead to a sort of like really interesting history of like cultural syncretism like multicultural and uh products a, a, a sort of origin story of modern tea but it actually is just like this kind of goes nowhere for a decade where eventually the british um officials decide all right let's just like ditch this whole idea of like using chinese methods chinese plants chinese um tea makers chinese artisans and they this is around 1850s or so and they just kind of focus on growing the tea plant that is actually native and found in the song and um, they have these very, you know, like Whiggish stories of how they brought European science to Assam and they learned how to, how to do things like you said, like prune them, cultivate them. They measured how many years it took for a tea plant to produce good tea, the best way to like trim the leaves to keep to make sure that or to you know, trim the branches to make sure the leaves would be nice and tender and fresh uh, and so on. And there was a lot of, you know, claims at the turn of the 20th century that the reason Indian, which is to say British colonial tea, was so successful was because it tasted good, which is because of the scientific methods they applied to it. Um, it's hard for us to know, you know, the veracity of a lot of these statements. I'm sure there is some truth to them, 
but it was also like a propaganda campaign on the on behalf of the British companies and government to promote, you know, uh, Indian and Lipsilanese colonial tea as the superior product when they made all sorts of sort of extremist claims between like Western civilization versus Eastern civilization represented by Chinese and Japanese tea um, that, you know, could not be, could, it couldn't possibly, total, couldn't possibly be totally correct. Um, but there's probably some truth. Like there is documentation, for instance, of this accusation that Chinese tea was full of dust and non-tea plants and branches and adding green dye and, and blue dye to, to add color. And that's been documented in Chinese sources. So, there's no reason not to think that stuff is, you know, wrong. But I think even today, though, like tea production is very manual, labor intensive. Um, and there were these claims by the British that they were kind of completely automating it and using like very clean, sterile steel tools to make it completely sanitary. Um, and that couldn't possibly be true. So it's, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, I, I, you know, I'd be kind of curious what a actual someone who's kind of much more steeped in these histories of STS um, and kind of disaggregating colonial knowledge from the actual like processes, well, what they would have to say about this, because for me, for myself, I was kind of unsure how to, how to read these, um, this, this 19th century materials, which are very clearly, um, you know, uh, shot through with political um, biases. Yeah. It sounds like a kind of a branding exercise, right? Sort of like using the prestige of Western science yeah. uh, and the kind of perceived yeah. innovation of Western culture or something like that as a yeah. way of branding certainty, yeah. uh, Indian tea or colonial tea for, to kind of promote its success in the marketplace. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, one, yeah, one thing that's kind of interesting is like, I don't know if it makes necessarily makes sense to kind of offer a contrast between colonial propaganda and science rather than to say that in fact, these two things are just of a piece with one another. Right. And there isn't really a, much of a substantive distinction to be made there. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, this was something I wrestled with. And, uh, you know, the broader point I made uh, at some, an argument I do make is that I think a lot of the historiography of not to, not to say that it's a huge literature, but there are a few scholars who've written about like, why did Indian tea succeed over Chinese tea? And I think a lot of them kind of take those, that colonial propaganda at face value and would say, well, because of the scientific revolution that happened in India, that is actually a claim that was written by, by one of the sort of historians of Chinese tea. And I don't blame them, right? Like they can only, they're only working with so, so much material. Um, but if you look, kind of dig down into the materials a little bit further, one could look at, for instance, just like very scattershot data that was produced at different moments and compare them side by side and say, actually, these things are not that different. So I try to do that a little bit, but, you know, this is a real problem of, um, you know, like what, what is actually available and how do you actually, you know, pierce through the you know the 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 sort of the dent, the op- opacity and the sort of um, scarcity of some of these sources. Uh, I do I do I don't know I don't know how you feel. I would kind of hold hold on to some sort of belief that there is some sort of you know third conclusion one could reach by looking out beyond like the two sides and looking beyond the British, looking beyond the Chinese, and being able to like find something else that isn't you know necessarily verbatim from a source. But uh, that might be too much of a sort of objectivist <laughs> fantasy for a historian. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, in some ways, it kind of reminds me of a classic argument in STS. Um, there's a book, for example, by Ken Alder about the history of the gun, which is really a history of replaceable parts. So the first mm. place where replaceable parts apparently was introduced or supposedly introduced in manufacturing was for gun manufacturing in France. And the argument that Alder at least makes is that 
it was always touted in the name of e- efficiency, right? That, oh, if you have replaceable parts, then you don't need to replace the whole gun. You can just kind of, it, it becomes modular. You can mix and match. So there's a kind of increased efficiency in gun production this way. But in fact, if you look at the gun manufacturing in, I guess this is like sort of 18th century France, it didn't bring any gains in efficiency at all. In fact, it was really hard yeah. <laughs> to produce guns in this way. Yeah. And so it was kind of a, a an end in itself, right? So yeah. there was a sort of ideology of efficiency and replaceable parts was one way that this ideology expressed itself. Yeah. And then subsequently, you know, the success of gun manufacturing was explained through this ideology. As yeah, well. So no, it's almost a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. That seems to be like the more I've been reading about, I have, you know, for this, for this book, I kind of delved a little bit into the literature on the industrial revolution and how that has changed over the years. And that seems to kind of mirror what exactly what you're saying, that for a long time, there's this story of, you know, you know, all these like the steam engine and factories and all these things are happening. But if you actually look at the data, it's like there actually wasn't a huge leap until like much later. And it doesn't actually and that leap doesn't actually reflect the story. And I, that's what I found with tea as well, that there was this huge story of the so-called industrial revolution and in productivity and the Indian tea plantations. But I found that it doesn't actually happen until long after it was, it was claimed to have happened. And so I was kind of looking for alternative explanations for why Indian tea could surpass Chinese tea. Um, if, and I ultimately come up to with an argument that I think is much, much, it's about economics. It's also a political argument that it's about the cheapness of the labor, uh, force in India. And in particular, the cheapness of the labor force enabled by the colonial administration where they, um, what's the word they sanction what, what are described as penal labor contracts where the, it was basically a form of unfree labor after slavery, where, um, Indian workers or Indian, basically peasants from all around Eastern and central India, are asked by their own consent, quote unquote, to sign these contracts. But once you sign them, they can't leave the plantations. And that basically gives impunity to the colonial planters to just abuse them and extract as much labor as possible. And they're only required to pay, you know, roughly the equivalent of like one half the market wage at the time. To me, that seems like, you know, that seems like a big deal in terms of like tipping the profitability of these plantations. And that's yeah, and gains in efficiency, right? Yeah. If you can just force people, yeah, yeah, like so, it's not necessarily like physically efficient. It's just like a calculating trick. You're just like yeah. you deduce, you just like subtract half of the inputs. Um, so I don't know that that's the argument I ultimately came up with because I found a lot of these scientific explanations to be, like you said, more ideology than than based in any sort of data. Yeah, interesting. So this is a good place to maybe transition a little bit away from just the kind of narrative history of tea cultivation and think about some of the broader arguments. So you're starting to discuss and describe some of the really interesting arguments and interventions that you make in this book. And that's really, I thought, at least to this reader myself, really the main strength of this book is the way that you leverage this really rich, fascinating history to make a huge number of really deep and broad (laughs) interventions, I would say, in all sorts of literatures, but including the literature of, well, kind of history of technology, but even more so maybe the history of capitalism. So one place that we could begin maybe is a kind of classic debate or a classic literature in the history of capitalism, which is the great divergence literature, which is something you mentioned explicitly in your book as well. And how, so if you could just talk a little bit about how the history of tea upends or maybe changes the kind of classic debates about the great divergence that have been taking place. Yeah, so I would say actually um, I wind up I, so within Chinese studies, the last 20 years, if you've taken any class in Chinese studies or thought about Chinese economic history or Asian economic history, you just wrestle with the Great Divergence over and over. And at some point, you know, when I first read it, when I was young and didn't understand economics, I hated the book, you know, I'll be honest. 
but later I've like come to really appreciate the book and, and, and the sophistication of the arguments that I, I fully acknowledge. I, I don't even fully grasp today. Um, and I think ultimately I come to an argument that is not that dissimilar. Like I think both myself and, you know, Camp Pomerantz and, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, peer in that, in this argument, Arbin Wong, right. We're all kind of making arguments about, um, against an Orientalist way of thinking about economics, that there's an East and a West, and that these are somehow uh, divided by like something like culture or civilization. And we're constantly trying to show, I'm constantly trying to show how these things are quite similar. Now, the results are different, but that's just capitalism. That's just how the game goes, you know? But in terms of like, what are people actually trying to do and how, what are what are the sort of you know, incentives and limitations and the structures and all that stuff, I'm trying to argue that capitalism is a way a a focus on the history of capitalism is a way to sort of go beyond this kind of dead end between like eastern versus western um ways of trying to understand global history like is this is this about capitalism westernizing asia or is this about asia having its own indigenous agency and i think these are kind of you know neither they're kind of the flip side of each other in a way kind of unproductive in the long run so um in terms of how i relate to the great divergence literature right again I'm, i'm trying to show I mean, the divergence between the Indian and Chinese tea is kind of this miniature divergence. And, um, and, so, and what I'm trying to say is that, you know, just because there's a divergence in the end in terms of like one industry doing better than another industry, that doesn't mean that these are two civilizationally or culturally, you know, um, uh, com- you know completely different, opposite um, situations. In fact, they're being brought closer and closer together. And that's the kind of paradox I point out at the beginning of the book to say, you know, these are diverging in one sense but they're also locked in this mutual war of competition that's where the war in the title of the book comes from um so the question isn't so much why do they have different results but like how do they wind up engaged in the same pursuits of basically generalized commodity production to accumulate wealth and profits you know for for the particular regions and you know the basic difference i guess between myself and the divergence literature is i think the divergence literature if if you look at those books I think for the sake of argument, for the sake of a simplifying assumption, they kind of take the economics, the sort of, uh, you know, neoclassical model at face value and just say, you know, everyone's a utility maximizing individual, just just for the sake of argument. I think in reality, all these historians know that that's not true, right? But I think my, my, my um, interest was to historicize that idea of a utility, not necessarily just that, but just like to, to historicize capitalism, to say that we aren't just born trying to, you know, acquire as much wealth as possible to produce as many commodities as possible and maximize utility. That is a historical process that needs to be, you know, that has a beginning. Um, and, you know, we would call it capitalism. And so I'm more interested in that and, and, and figuring out how that works in places like China and India, which are different than the sort of classic models, which are, you know, originally Britain and the UK and, um, you know, offline, we're talking earlier about how it seems like the model is now kind of shifting to the United States, and that has now kind of become the locus of interest in the history of capitalism. Um, and I'm trying to stay connected and interested in all those, you know, earlier or classical um, arguments, but I'm also trying to articulate exactly how that looks, let's say, in China, India, and perhaps provide tools to think about the rest of the world too. kind of disaggregate, you know, what's 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 essential versus like what's uh, what are the sort of core essential characteristics of what's going on versus like what you could say is like part of the local and the regional and the historically specific. Um, so I don't know if that, that might, that might be a little bit too abstract, but I guess that's kind of what I was trying to set out to do. No, that's great. Um, so this actually leads into another 
question I had, which is about um, maybe even more directly about the history of capitalism. So one thing I also really appreciated about your book is that you walk this kind of fine line between, on the one hand, making a really strong and compelling argument for denaturalizing capitalism as a kind of category and not just, as you just said now, like buying into the assumptions, let's say, of the kind of psychological assumptions, for example, of neoclassical economics and other kinds of assumptions about maybe international development and so on and so forth that a lot of political economists certainly have made and therefore a lot of economic historians also have made. So on the one hand, denaturalizing mm-hmm. some of the category of capitalism. But on the other hand, also, um, it seems like you're sort of more comfortable. A lot of historians of capitalism are very uncomfortable trying to offer any kind of definition of capitalism Mm -hmm. or even worse yet, sort of laying bare maybe something like the logic of capitalism. And it seems like your book, you're not afraid to do that. You really do engage, you give a kind of structural Marxian account of the logic of capitalism without naturalizing capitalism, which of course is its own kind of Marxian move, I guess, in a way. So I wonder if you could explain that a bit to us, if you could talk to us a little bit about what your kind of theory of capitalism is and how it works. Yeah. I mean, to to be confessional for a moment, I was afraid. And uh, in my first draft, I didn't have a definition. And a lot of my reviewers were like, you're not defining it and you have to tell us what you actually actually mean by this. Uh, And I thought, you know, those other books don't have to. Why do I have to? But, <laughs> I <mean>. <laughs> uh, but I, I do. But I do think I use perhaps use the concept more upfront. So yeah, I think it was probably a good thing that I wound up defining it. And I make an argument in the introduction that I think is true. That you know, I'm obviously drawing upon Marx, but I think it's a particular reading of Marx, and it's one that you know it could be guilty of being a little bit too presentist. But I think it's a, a version of Marxist thought that has really emerged in the last couple of decades in light of the way that global capitalism has kind of developed, which is to say it's not about... So, so the old version and the one that kind of becomes indistinguishable from like right-wing or like government-sponsored modernization theory, which is that, you know, every country has their own stages to, of growth. And it could also be called Stalinist, right? Like peasants to industrial to socialist or something. Or that could become Rostovian, like or WW Rostow, like, you know, you have this takeoff and so on. That is the old version. Which is the Great Divergence, sort of. Um, it, is, yeah. it is a little bit, right? Like, yeah, that, that's certainly a criticism one can make of that. Uh, and that's, of course, like the classic mode of most economic history. It's about basically tracking GDP and projecting GDP backwards as this historical phenomenon, um, national GDP. For me, for the definition of that I'm kind of, the tradition that I think I locate myself within, and again, I don't want to say it's my definition, right? I borrow a lot from other theorists and you can look at the footnotes for who, who I look at, but it's much more about a reading of Marx that capitalism is a kind of a very basic abstract logic of producing, uh, I don't want to, mess, I don't want to mess this up. Basically it's about the increasing the value. It is about the pursuit of increase of value using commodities any commodity as the medium through which you increase value. And the basic formula, you know, for anyone who's read capital is, you know, M, money for commodities for extra money, right? And M prime, which becomes surplus value. And uh, it's a very basic logic that has a lot of assumptions attached to it. But the most basic one is that at some point, some form of commodified labor has to become available as a type of, as a particular commodity that where you get more value out of it than you, than you put into it. Right. Uh, And that, but, but not just that, right. That's the kind of basic exploitation argument. The other argument is that um, once labor becomes a sort of, measuring stick or a substance of, of, of how value gets gets measured, then um, this makes labor productivity 
um, the sort of basis for 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 value for how you evaluate the value of anything. I'm saying the word value a lot, sorry. But basically, you know, labor itself, labor productivity, becomes the basis for you know money for how much stuff is worth out there. And once that once that happens, then you, the thing that kicks in is this whole you know, like treadmill that we've been on for so, several centuries where people are constantly racing to make things faster, make more things. And then once everyone catches up to them, all those profit differentials, those possibilities for, you know, beating your competitors, that disappears. And people have to look for other ways to make more stuff and fast, and make stuff faster. And I think that is something that might be missing in some histories that would say cap- that the history of capitalism is about trade, for instance, or the history of, of money usage, right? Like those things are obviously central to capitalism. But I think what makes capitalism capitalism is that um, kind of dynamic of labor productivity uh, being at the heart of things. And it could take many different forms. We know it used to be that the classical model was that it has to look like basically the proletarian workforce of Manchester or Liverpool, um, or it has to look like you know some version of like a Fordist economy in, in the United States, Japan, and United uh, and Europe. But increasingly, I think because of globalization in the last few decades, people are looking at things like unfree labor, which of course has led to like all these new great studies on slavery in the United States and the Americas. Um, it can also look at informal labor, domestic labor, sideline labor, right? And those are things that are happening um, in Asia um, or the sort of global South where a lot of commodity production happens today. And uh, I was certainly inspired by that literature, which is kind of both historical but social scientific, to think differently about tea production um, in China and India. I think that kind of represents two different poles of what would have been excluded from earlier histories, right? Earlier histories of proletarian labor would have excluded um, labor indenture because it's too unfree. Or they would have excluded household, domestic, um, gendered, you know, sideline labor, which is how tea gets made in China. Because again, that's not urban, that's not industrial, that's not free labor. Um, so you know, I think I think in that that my interpretation my interpretation of capitalism is sort of baseline logic that takes on many different forms is one that's certainly inspired by the literature on globalization or the new new international division of labor that has emerged in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, great. So I'm trying to think about there's a couple of directions we can go in from here. And one of them would be, I'm trying to decide which one to go in, basically. So I guess, yeah, let me follow up with a question about competition. Yeah. So if you were just describing an international division of labor, uh, and in your case, I take it you're looking especially at South Asia versus East Asia, right. uh, India versus China. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the specific labor regimes that obtained in both of those places and how tea cultivators attempted to exploit those labor regimes to extract as much surplus value or accumulate as much capital as possible in each of those places, and how that in turn explains the kind of global dynamics of tea cultivation in the long 19th and into the 20th century. Yeah, so I'll start with China because I think it's actually a much more common and universal experience, which is to say I think it actually applies to a lot of different commodities in Chinese history. And my suspicion is a lot of agrarian, rural, commercial societies around the world, including much of India, uh, which is to say that, you know, these, it's basically a medium to small size peasant household society economy that starting in the 17th, 18th century, historians think really became one that was driven by the commercialization of commodities. Um, and these would be commodities that are not necessarily what these, you know, these households are doing full time. You know, they still like 
grow rice or grow you know food and clothing to feed themselves. But on the side, they get into things like textile production for the marketplace, uh, silk, uh, you know, cotton, but also like regional specialties, um, including tobacco and tea. Uh, and uh, you know, and, and that process is what has some historians have called industri- the industrious revolution that Jan de Vries famously talks about that in Northern Europe in the around the same period. And in Japan, you have a similar literature um, talking about what's happening in, in, in Tokugawa, Japan. So that's why I kind of think it's much more universal. And uh, the premise there is basically that for whatever reason, um, these family households progressively more and more over the centuries devote more and more of their time to producing for the marketplace than producing for themselves. In producing for the marketplace rather than for themselves, then they actually have, they have to therefore buy more from the marketplace. Uh, because they're not, you know, spending their entire time pr- pr- providing for themselves. So this leads to a situation where even though everyone kind of is, you know, basically a landholder that has property, they're not divorced from their land, like the proletarian, the, the sort of doubly free labor model would assume, everyone is market dependent. And you have a you have a social division of labor where you have specialists producing for each other through a marketplace and that can in turn produce, you know, these sort of competitive dynamics where people are trying to increase their productivity to in order to kind of, you know, keep their share of the market. That's a pretty classic example, I think, of non-proletarian, you know, commercialization, perhaps early capitalism. The question that's kind of interesting is, you know, why doesn't that happen in India, where I've mentioned earlier, they use a lot of unfree labor. And this is where I think my perspective of trying to connect China with India led me to ask a question that a lot of Indian historians are not, did not ask, which is a lot of India, Indian historiography of the Indian tea industry kind of starts at the end where this, this penal labor contract regime has been established and there's mostly documentation of how awful it was and how it was exploitative. And a lot of that literature is nationalist in, in, in nature, the materials are. And I think that's kind of the basic framework of some of the historians who I think do very good work. And I'm not questioning that the system was awful and brutal. But the question I had was, how did this get started in the first place? Especially because this is the 19th century, this is the age of abolition, emancipation around the world. The last thing anyone wants to do is be accused of slavery. So why do you have these, not just like uh, uh, not just residual, but also resurgence of unfree forms of labor? And it turns out, like at the beginning, the British um, tea planters, like they try to do the Chinese model. They try to get the locals to grow tea on their own and have this industrious revolution type of commercialized agriculture. But for various reasons, and here ideology comes into play again. Either because, according to the British officials, the locals are lazy. Or, you know, my suspicion is that just that they didn't pay enough and that the locals had their own, they had better things to do and they already had land anyway. Um, They couldn't get the locals to work for them. This becomes an ideological justification for these unfree penal labor contracts that I think is not that dissimilar from the history of, let's say, indentured labor in the Caribbean around the same time or slavery in the first place, right? The enslavement of African workers in the first place, this justification that, you know, we can't get Indians or locals or Europeans to do this work for us. So we need to um, forcibly create a labor force where one does not exist. Um, all, I, I guess I point out, point out all of this to say is that I think there is a sort of unifying logic behind these different labor regimes, but it really depends upon the sort of the temporal and the spatial and the regional uh, differences, right? Like I think if you did have a sort of ex- pre-existing established commercialized society in Assam, similar to that in China, you might have had more success getting the locals to grow tea, and vice versa. If you had a real like um, scarcity of labor and, and sort of low labor to land ratio in the southern part, regions of China, um, 
they did actually have that in a lot of the tea regions, but they wound up just getting migrant workers from, you know, you know, a hundred miles away to come in and grow tea for them instead. Right. And in that case, in that sense, there is actually more similarities than appear at first. Right. And that, that's another argument I'm kind of making throughout this book that even though, again, the British and all sorts of historians have posited these sort of national differences between India and China, there's actually a lot of similarities insofar as they kind of have the same basic requirements to, to grow tea for the world market. So one thing that your book does, we've been talking a lot about kind of theoretical interventions, but there's also a really interesting kind of spatial intervention or geographic intervention. There's an obvious one, which is shifting the focus of the history of capitalism to Asia, to the Indian Ocean, to South Asia, South Asia and East Asia. But there's another one that is a little more subtle that I was wondering if you wanted to speak about, and that's decentering the city. So mm. moving our attention to rural spaces, yeah. away from treaty ports, away from urban factories, and towards what might be described as a kind of hinterland. So do you want to talk a little bit about the kind of geography of capitalism and how looking at tea cultivation maybe upends or changes the way we think about the geography of capitalism? Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is something I, I was trying to think about in connection to other um, other histories that have kind of made similar arguments that uh, I think an argument could be, there's a strain of argumentation about, you know, history of economic history, history of capitalism, that capitalism begins perhaps in places that are considered backwards by the 20th century. Um, so backwards in the sense of, let's say, unfree labor, right? That actually slave, capitalism begins with like enslavement and um, penal contracts and indenture. Another argument could be like, we tend to think by the 20th century that capitalism is about urban industries, but maybe the first capitalist workforces were these plantations in the middle of the countryside. Uh, and there's arguments to say that, you know, if capitalism is fundamentally, initially at least, founded upon or requires a certain, labor, certain amount of coercion and sort of like, you know, area to like have a kind of a factory in the field situation, then it would happen, then that would happen more likely in a remote area where there is more, uh, let's say, political or social power by one group over another group, um, that, would, that would make that possible. So there's an argument that was made, for instance, in Chinese history. I mentioned this uh, social, historian, social historian, his name is Fu Yiling, and he made an argument very many decades ago that I don't think many people have taken up, that he thinks that these like very backwards, quote-unquote, right, objectively, back, not morally backwards, of um, economic regions in the, in, the, in the hinterlands, in the mountains, in the forests, where they grew things like paper and tobacco and tea um, for people who were basically had no property. Those might have been much more like an industrial um, production system than in the sort of urban cities, uh, ur- urban areas where things were much more like small scale and people were, like I said earlier, kind of doing it on their own free time. Um, and similarly, like with regards to plantation forms, the you know I teach this book; it's always on my mind. Sidney Mintz's book on sugar, he's 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 making this. I think maybe perhaps in the eighties, it was a heretical argument that capitalism does not begin in Europe. Industrial capitalism does not necessarily begin in Europe with free workers in the city, but in these unfree slave plantations in the sixteenth century Caribbean. Um, and it would be heretical, right? Because the received received idea was that you know capitalism is this Western European thing. That was the byproduct of I know, European genius or European culture, um, but in fact, he thinks that the first he speculates right the first sort of recognizably modern industrial workforce might have been the sugar plantations of the 16th century. Um, so you know, I don't have a grand unifying theory for this, but I do think that this is something that, as more people pay attention to these sort of unfree or non 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 orthodox forms of labor and production, 
more people, I think, are, are in, different, in different venues are kind of pointing out this paradox, right? And, you know, by the end of the book, something I haven't talked about very much yet is, you know, the last couple chapters of the book are kind of more intellectual histories about um, how these things that were quite crucial to the emergence, I argue, of, of capital accumulation in China and India in the 19th century, by the 20th century, they become kind of crucified and demonized as backwards and pre-modern and things that modern nationalists have to get rid of. So in the context of China, it's, it's about the commercial, the networks of commercial merchants that famously become demonized as compradors under the, the communist regime, but also I would argue even earlier than that. But in reality, in the 19th century, these, these quote-unquote compradors are actually the, the real crucial agent that made um, you know, commercial capitalism possible in China. And similarly in, in India, and this is a story that gets echoed throughout much of the um, sort of British imperial or Western imperial world, um, unfree labor is crucial to the emergence of a lot of these industrial production systems. And then seemingly overnight, like within a few decades, it becomes kind of common sense that unfree labor is incompatible with the free world. And we have to get rid of it, even, you know, which, you know, people in the United States following these debates these days about the role of slavery in U.S. history are well aware, right? Like that, from an economic standpoint, that's kind of incoherent, right? That 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 unfree labor actually contributed all sorts of economic gains, all sorts of get economic gains that um, you know last until the present. So I think um, I was interested by the end of the book to you know I, I I guess I was facing this question. Okay, I've I've kind of disproven or in my mind, right? Sort of challenged this orthodoxy of what capitalism has to look like by looking at this earlier phase then why is it the case that for like so many decades, people thought commercial capitalism or comprador merchants or unfree labor, right, are um, anathema or antithetical to modern capitalism. That itself is a sort of intellectual history of the early 20th century that I, that I try to, you know, begin to answer, let's say, in, the, in those last few chapters. Yeah, I thought the really compelling point that you make is that it's an intellectual history, which is itself a part of or a consequence even you might say of the history of capitalism yeah it's it's a kind of it's a product of capitalism's understanding of itself is one of the products of capitalism yeah yeah and yeah and you know this is you know one of the interventions i tried to argue which is you know it's not um revolutionary but i don't think enough historians kind of pay attention to this is the idea that you know capitalism is often kind of bifurcated or thought of as a sort of either material it stands on kind of one side of the sort of material versus idealist conception of history and obviously it's mostly most often seen as a materialist aspect that ignores things like culture and we shouldn't be economically determinist and reduce culture and literature and ideas to capitalism but i think the you know you know like the the sort of uh, generative ideas that for instance were in marx for instance we're always arguing that it was neither just one or the other that these are kind of the flip side of each other and that obviously the relationship between the two is difficult to theorize, but it does seem to be the case that the history of ideas tracks roughly with the history of um, material transformations in a way that is not necessarily reductive or doesn't have to be reductionist, um, but can also help inform intellectual history. And also, um, you know, it can inform intellectual history and help us think about the relationship between the two um, as not just the sort of like, you know, the, the base determines the superstructure, right? That that's a sort of stereotype. Um, so I was, I was trying to argue all throughout, you know, this transformation that's happening is something that doesn't have to be just economic or just cultural or just intellectual, 
these things are interacting interacting with each other and ultimately i think that's that's why you know um why capitalism as a sort of social structure is a really interesting way to think about historical change. Well, I think that's a great place to end. So let me just thank you, Andy, for joining us and to congratulate you on the publication of this book, T-Wars. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me.